0: Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, in this episode, hear from physician turned scientist who is using more than genetics, looking at biomarkers for how to update drug discovery and treatments. And if you're interested in hearing more about what I'm doing with maternal health, check out www.rxformom.com. And reach out if you are a pediatric pharmacist or pharmacist interested in maternal health. I'm looking for others who are also passionate about that and want to help with some content. Or maybe you're also a mom and have questions just like I did, so reach out. Let me know what you think about this project. All right. So today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest is the founder and CEO of Sapient, which we'll learn more a bit about later. Dr. Mo Jane, who is a physician scientist with more than 20 years of experience in physiology, biomedicine engineering, computational biology, and mass spectrometry, based Metabolomics. He formed and managed Jane Laboratory at the University of California, San Diego, where he guided a multidisciplinary research team to develop next generation rapid liquid chromatography mass spectrometry systems to probe the non-genetic landscape of disease across large scale human studies. Mo, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast.
1: Thank you so much Hillary. Really a pleasure to be here today and I appreciate the invitation.
0: Well, thanks for joining us and uh you know, we've a lot of uh different scientific things there that you have specialized in that we learned about in your background. Uh maybe you can, you know, of course go into a little bit more detail on that, but you know where are you calling in from uh, in the world, and and now that our listeners have heard a bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a bit about your personal life.
1: Absolutely, appreciate and happy to do so. So we're we're based here in uh, sunny San Diego in, in Southern California. Um, but we, uh, we service uh, clients and sponsors and, and biopharma organizations uh, around the world. And uh, I think at this point, we've worked with samples that have come from something on the order of 20 to 25 different countries around the world. Um, so really uh, sort of have a, a worldwide footprint, but are, are headquartered here in, in San Diego. Um, as, as far as my background, as you mentioned, uh, I started life as a physician. Uh, I was a practicing uh, adult cardiologist and, and absolutely loved it uh, and loved every minute of of the privilege of taking care of patients. Um, but really, uh, fundamentally, struggled with one question that came off quite often. And, and I was training in Boston at the time, and um, there are a lot of hyper educated folks that get admitted to the hospital and. Uh, they're not shy about asking really tough questions as patients should. And, and one of the mm-hmm. questions often that came up is, well, uh, why did I get sick? Why did this happen to me? And, and how were we not able to diagnose this years before? And is mm-hmm. there something I can do for my spouse, my child, my brother, my sister, to, my parent to, to be able to identify disease at an early state for them?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, um, you know, in medical school and beyond, you're, you're taught the sort of standard answer, Um, Well, you know, there's this mechanism that gives rise to disease and this and that. Um, And, you know, those answers work well, what I would say, on a population scale. On average, we kind of know what may contribute to certain diseases. We know tobacco smoke uh, contributes in some way to lung cancer. Um, But when you look on an individual scale, and and why did I develop lung cancer when I don't smoke, uh, and I'm a young, healthy individual... Uh, with no genetic predisposition, in my family. When, when you go through those questions, it becomes a lot harder to be able to answer uh, why an individual developed a disease, and, and from that, then how you can best treat that individual, and how you can best diagnose at the earliest stages for their family members. And as we would go through those explanations with these patients, their brow would always, uh, their their brow would always furrow and then say, ah, I don't know about that. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Explain this to me again. And uh, the mathematicians were always the toughest because they would say, you know, that really makes absolutely no sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have to explain this to me again and again. And, uh, you know, the long and the short of it, um, Hillary, for anyone who works in medicine, uh, the simple reality is we can't tell you why most individuals develop disease. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't do a great job of diagnosing disease before it really happens, before it's clinically apparent in the subclinical stage. And we really don't understand oftentimes what's the best medication for an individual. We can tell you what's the best medication as a whole for that disease, but on a person-to-person basis uh, and on on the disease that's specific to me versus you, what the best medication is, uh, we don't have the ability to personalize therapy in that way. Uh, And that's pretty obvious as you you go into this, uh, sort of as you ask deeper questions. And um, this is where my interest in, in science really lies and understanding uh, what are the root causes of disease and, and being able to leverage that information to diagnose disease at its earliest stage point, uh, to be able to help develop drugs and, and then to implement and execute on those drugs in the most efficacious way possible in a very personalized manner.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, yes. So, you know, as a pharmacist, I know a lot of our listeners are, Um, you know, familiar with pharmacogenomics, and there have been a lot of advances in that. And, you know, some people may be fast metabolizers or slow metabolizers. And so getting some of that information can really help with, um, you know, kind of uh, making your therapy or treatment options a little bit more customized. But, you know, you're even, um, you know, speaking about how do we not only identify people who may be at risk, but also even, you know, working maybe with pharmaceutical companies to help develop uh, new drugs and things. Um, tell us a little bit why about just genetics alone aren't enough to personalize medicine.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great great question, and, and this was the promise of the human genome. Uh, that that it was going to be able to help understand disease at a very early stage and predict disease and really personalize therapy. And uh, you can argue that not all of that has actually come true. Now uh, the genetics and, and genomics has taught us a ton uh, and you can do a thought exercise, uh, Hillary, whereby uh, you know you could say, if we lined up every person on the planet and sequenced every single genome and knew everything about clinically about every single one of those seven, 8 billion people, how much of human disease could we explain? Uh, and you can do that modeling exercise. And and whereas we think that answer should be 80, 90, 95%, the real answer is somewhere in the order of 15 to 20% at best, Uh, which means that even if we know everything about human genetics, we probably can only explain about 15, 20% of population attributable risk. And and we know this, we we know this in in monozygotic twins, Uh, maternal twins that have the exact same genome, one of them will develop diabetes and the other one won't. One will develop Alzheimer's and the other one won't. And and you can model this across large populations. And and that means that there's other things beyond genomics and your genomic code uh, that control human disease. And, And this is the way in which you live your life. Everything you eat, drink, smell, smoke, the hundred years of your existence is a more profound influence on human disease Uh, than the genetic code that's set at the moment of conception. And uh, the uh, sort of phraseology around that that always uh, resonates is that your zip code is probably more important than your genetic code uh, Mm -hmm. for how healthy you're going to be over time. And and that's absolutely true.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, have, Have certainly been hearing that phrase a lot. Yeah. Well, um, maybe you could also share a bit more about some of the new methods for biomarker discovery and validation and translation and for the clinical impact um, that we might see from those.
1: Yeah, great question, Hillary, and I'm happy to expand upon this. So uh, as we said, you know, genetic code probably accounts for a minority of risk, somewhere in the order of 15 to 20%. So where and how do we capture the information about the other 80% of risks, 80, 90% that's not measured in genetic code? Uh, and again, as mentioned, this comes from the world in, in which we live. Uh, everything we eat, drink, smell, smoke, the way our liver influences our brain, or our microbe in our gut influences our heart, or a fat cell influences our lungs, etc et cetera, et cetera, that communication scheme. And so that information, again, is not in genetic code, but is in what we call small molecule chemistry. Uh, These are among the most ancient of molecules. This is how we communicate among our organ systems. This is how our body communicates with the external world. Uh, When we eat something for breakfast or lunch, it gets broken down in our gut and those small molecules are what travel through the blood. Now, when you go to the doctor, every year as part of your routine physical, they draw those two tubes of blood. And in those Mm -hmm. two tubes, they measure 12 uh, different molecules. Half of those molecules, so six on average, are are what we call small molecule biomarkers. The challenge is is that we're measuring 12 of these or so in blood, but there's over 12,000 of them floating around in our bloodstream at any given time. Uh, and, and so we're really capturing a very, very small snippet of the total information that's present. Uh, and, and so what we've done at Sapient is is we've developed technologies that are based in what we call mass spectrometry that are these devices that allow us to measure complex mixtures and quantify how many things are in certain samples. And we've taken these methodologies and we've made them really, really fast. And, and what they allow us to do is to measure those twelve to 20,000 things that are floating around in a blood sample and, and to do that very quickly uh, on population scales, meaning 20,000, 30,000, 100,000 people at a time. And, and so that's the basis for our, our, our company. And by doing so... Um, we, we can now begin to identify uh, markers that tell us if someone's going to develop disease at an early time point, or who's going to respond to a particular therapeutic, or who's going to have an adverse event to a certain drug, or help pharma companies, as you mentioned, uh, Hillary, uh, better develop drugs.
0: Yeah. So speaking of drug development, can you go into a little bit of that? Like, What has been the typical path for drug development and how can we use some of this new uh, technology and insights to help improve that uh, process?
1: Sure. So as you know, as a pharmacist from all your experience, um, drug development, um, despite all the modern technologies that we have and the amount of money that's spent on this, is, is still an area that's fraught with failure. Uh, perhaps more so than any other industry in the world. And so for every 10 drugs that actually end up in clinical studies, only one of those will ultimately emerge at the end uh, as successful and end up in patients and and, and, and undergo FDA approval. Uh, and, And this is why drug development is incredibly expensive because you have to pay for the nine failures. This is why it takes so, so long And this is why the innovation cycle and the rapidity with which we can develop new drugs is such a slow process. And so what biomarkers allow us to do, measuring these thousands of things in blood, what they allow us to do is skew those statistics and rather saying, well, you know, one out of 10 is going to succeed. uh, We can use this type of information to push that to 20%, 30%, 50%, and hopefully higher over time. And the way we do this is is by uh, being able to better subset individuals who who are likely to respond to a particular drug. Now, the way um, drugs are tested, as as you know, um, a particular therapeutic is tested in a broad group of individuals that have that disease. Let's call it diabetes, for instance, and we'll test a new diabetes drug in all individuals with diabetes. Uh, the problem is that what we call diabetes probably represents five, six, seven, eight different diseases, all of which result in the same end phenotype of metabolic imbalance, elevation of sugar, insulin re- resistance, and insensitivity, et cetera. Uh, but there's really subgroups of people, and we know this clinically, uh, as a, a Southeast Asian individual, uh, I, I will develop diabetes likely for a completely different reason than someone who's born in in, in Northern Europe. Um, and, and so that's really, really important in being able to understand why an individual developed a particular disease and then align a therapeutic that's specific to me and the reason for I uh, developed for the reason that I developed my specific disease as opposed um, uh, for uh, why another individual developed their disease. And, and so what these markers allow us to do is to align individuals with their specific diseases and therapeutics that are geared towards them. And so this is the approach we've taken here at Sapient to to, to work with pharma uh, and biopharma clients who are developing drugs to help them accelerate drug development and to make uh, drug development a safer and and more efficacious process as a whole.
0: Yeah, very interesting. So Mo, as a cardiologist, uh, have you seen any major advancements through biomarkers for any particular System in the body. I know you mentioned diabetes a, a bit ago, but have you seen, you know, anything specifically for, you know, the neurological system or more so in the cardiovascular system? Uh, what have been some of the the big, I guess, like successes or or kind of advancements that you've seen thus far?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really really good question, Hillary. Um, and and what I would say is that this is a tool. Uh, And the tool is relatively agnostic to the underlying disease. And so at at Sapient, we've uh, worked in 30, 40 different disease states, everything from very common diseases such as heart disease and cancer, neurodegenerative disease, NASH and liver disease, autoimmune disorders, all the way through very rare diseases that occur in one in a million individuals. Um, And the the better uh, sense here is that we've seen signals that have allowed us to help pharma companies develop drugs better. In virtually every single one of those areas, now I, I think there's particular diseases for which there may be enrichment. I think autoimmune disease, uh, metabolic disturbances such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, stroke, um, aging processes, uh, pregnancy. These types of, of physical physiologic processes are, are where we see more signals rather than less, but. Uh, I'm trying to think of the last time uh, we engaged in a project with a biopharma organization and we were not able to find a marker that helped them. Uh, And it's not because it's magic. It's just we're measuring a thousand times more things than are typically measured. And when you look at a thousand more things, um, a thousand times more things, your chance of finding something important uh, goes up substantially.
0: Very interesting. So where can people stay, uh, you know, in the know and find out what's happening with Sapien and some of the work that you're doing?
1: I appreciate that. Um, uh, Much of what we do, Hillary, is really geared towards supporting the biopharma um, sort of infrastructure right now. And so uh, most of our clients are are large pharmaceutical companies, early biotech companies that are are engaged in in therapy development and diagnostic testing. Uh, That being said, there's a number of, of diagnostic tests that are being developed here at Sapient. Uh, that we're hoping uh, to be able to release uh, for for medical testing in the very, very near future. And uh, those include everything from early tests for for diagnosis of Alzheimer's and cancer uh, to early metrics for heart disease, um, tests that tell us who's going to respond to to drug A versus drug B in a particular therapeutic area. Uh, tests for chronic infections, including chronic Lyme disease and some of these very difficult to diagnose disease states. And so uh, I hope in the very, very near future, if you're willing to, to let us back on here uh, on this incredible podcast, that uh, we may be able to share uh, some of these tests uh, as they're commercialized and, and, and brought to brought to patients directly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a feeling that a lot of pharmacists will probably be, be interested in this and who knows? Maybe you might have some opportunities for uh, pharmacists on your team if you don't already. So um, definitely some some unique things to stay on top of. Uh, so Mo, as our final question that I love to ask all of our guests, what is some advice you would tell your younger self, or for others out there who are just getting started in their career?
1: Oh my goodness, that's a loaded question, uh, Hillary. Um, as you can tell over the course of my careers, as, as much as I wish it was deliberate. Um, it's been simply a matter of of following my curiosity. Uh, and um, I was a practicing physician for 15 years. I was a, a professor in academia for 10 years. And, and now I'm a biotech entrepreneur for the last several years. And so I'm still searching for what I want to do when I grow up. Uh, and that's a reflection more of curiosity. And uh, the, the one advice I would always give uh, both to myself as well as to anyone is to not be scared of, um, of of following new ideas and, and not be scared of following uh, career paths. And um, as you know, from the pharmacy world or in any technical area, you spend so long training and developing the skills to be a world-class pharmacist. And it's hard to say at that point, well, hey, maybe I'm going to go do something slightly different than is typical now. And um, it's really, really important that you keep an open perspective and as you have with this incredible podcast um, and, and being able to say, well, uh, I'm going to do something slightly different, even though this is not the traditional path forward. Uh, success occurs in the margins and it occurs uh, through non-traditional paths.
0: Oh, I love that quote. Um, definitely we'll have to to use that again. Well, no, it has been such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Shiller. Really, it's been a pleasure and I appreciate the invitation and hope to talk soon.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating and reviewing it. Share it with friends.